Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. Charlemagne the God knows how to get people talking and keep them listening. Now, for those who don't know this man, you and I live very different lives. But to catch you up, Charlemagne is the ringleader of Power 1051's The Breakfast Club. What's happening? How y'all feeling out there? I am blessed, black, and highly favored here for another day to serve. The Breakfast Club is the most listened to hip hop morning radio show in America. And it's where Charlemagne has built something of a shock jock reputation. Whether he's cracking on Kevin Hart's infidelity to his face. Yes, what sir. was you thinking earlier this year when you got caught cheating in Vegas? Hey, brother, Mr. Irresponsible. Or fielding calls from Megan Thee Stallion during her ongoing beef with Nicki Minaj. Now, I haven't heard the record yet. Are you saying names? Um, I'm saying a hit dog on holler. That's it. And now, two decades into his broadcasting career, he's become an unlikely, at least to me, leading voice in politics. For the last few years, The Breakfast Club has become a crucial stop for Democratic hopefuls, with visits from the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Vice President Kamala Harris. Have you ever smoked? I have. Okay. Like and I, and I inhale. I did, in, I did inhale. <laughs> Charlemagne's Tell It Like It Is interview style has been the launching pad for several viral moments that, for better or worse, provided the politicians he interviewed with a chance to connect directly to millennial and Gen Z Black Americans. And for the 2024 election, Charlemagne's going all in. Last month, it was announced that he's co-founded a new political podcasting network, Reason Choice Media, in partnership with the iHeart Podcast Network. And this decision to double down in the political media space has left some scratching their heads. How has the man who wrote a book called Black Privilege become a political authority? And what does his popularity in that space indicate about the concerns of Black voters? To unpack all that, I sat down with Democratic pollster Terrence Woodbury and national correspondent for Politico, Bracton Booker, who recently profiled Charlemagne. Bracton, Terrence, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Brittany. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. To start off, Bracton, you see 2020 as the critical period when Charlemagne became a political figure. What was going on with Charlemagne in 2020? Folks, at least on the Democratic side, were really, really excited about who is going to be that voice, that figure who's going to try to take on Trump one-on-one. And a lot of the candidates, you remember there were five or six candidates that could have real viability Mm. in the primary, and they were all kind of competing for like, a sliver of votes. And some of the candidates started to realize, like, look, well, we need to make inroads with, with Black voters. They are a critical part of the Democratic base. And one of the places that they landed was on the Breakfast Club. And at the time, Charlemagne was kind of going through this transition of sorts, right? Mm. He was trying to move away from the, the shock jock appeal that he had built up for himself in the early days of Mm -hmm. of the Breakfast Club. And going back to the 2016 primary cycle, he had both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton on on his show. And Democratic candidates said, like, look, this is a place where we can can have deep discussions, we can have long-form discussions, and if you play it right, those moments will go viral. And 
give basically free advertisement for your campaigns. And that's how you saw Charlemagne land that pretty big interview and Biden ended up having the foot and mouth quote that uh, basically <laughs> <a> better way. <laughs> yeah. that basically is still kind of hanging over his presidency now. I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with you. If you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. I mean, are you even black? <laughs> I mean, so now, you know, that that's 2020 and you laid that out, Bracton. How has Charlemagne's relationship evolved with the Democrats since then? Well, look, I mean, he had good relationships with both the president and especially with Vice President Kamala Harris early on. Now, fast forward to <laughs> present day, that relationship is not as uh, cordial as it once was because of a lot of Charlemagne's takes right. and a lot of Charlemagne's uh, views on how the Biden-Harris administration has delivered for Black Americans. It's not that I regret <clears throat> endorsing uh, Joe Biden. It's just that, you know, I think that we all can get burned, you know, by politicians. But he also feels like the vice president has essentially abandoned reaching out to him for his platform and also to connect with Black voters. Yes, Charlemagne has been really loud in his critiques of the Biden administration. He goes to my hometown, Charleston, South Carolina, and he goes to the black church and then he goes to a soul food spot. They've been doing that same for years. And it's been interesting to watch those criticisms get picked up by conservative media. And, you know, the reason why we're talking about him today is that he has grown to be incredibly influential in this space in a way that I don't think anybody predicted. I certainly did not. But I, I wonder if Charlemagne is just reflecting his audience. From your perspective as a pollster, Terrence, what do we know about his audience? When I look at the demographics of Charlemagne's audience, who are largely people of color, majority Black, specifically under the age of 50, that these are folks that are often not engaging in politics every day. And so in the vacuum of information, and these are the folks that tell me in focus groups every day, they don't know anything that the White House is doing for them, not just this White House. They don't know anything that any White House has done for them. A young man said to me in a focus group recently, my hood didn't get any better under Obama. It didn't get any worse under Trump. So what has Biden got to do with me? When I think about Charlemagne's audience, they are often, you know, rightfully cynical, rightfully frustrated with the system. They're not just cynical towards Democrats. They're cynical towards Republicans. They're cynical towards the system, a system that has not delivered for them the way that they expected it to. That also makes them the most likely third party voters. You know, when I look at a, a, one of the things I think is missing in our political discourse right now is that this is not a competition between two people. There are more than two people in this contest and voters will have more than just two options. And when I look back at 2016 and, and what we were missing when Donald Trump was first elected, it was in the unpopularity of the two party candidates and so I think that Charlemagne has to accept some responsibility, that his audience of young people of color that are frustrated and cynical, that they will begin to shop for other options. Maybe that's what he wants, but that is a, that is a, um, uh, an outcome, a result that, that he's going to have to uh, also be responsible for. Can I, can I just push back for one second? Go ahead, go ahead. One second. Like, what he is trying to do is show the audience that there are different uh, options there. But what he told me, which was like the 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 phrase that keeps getting repeated back to me mm -hmm. when I talk to people about this piece, mm -hmm. is like he says that this this election is going to be come down to the 
the cowards, the crooks, and the couch. And the cowards being the Democrats because they're too afraid to like lean into the message. The crooks because they are, and the Republicans, in his words, because they are they are trying to take away rights from people. Mm-hmm. And the couch, and the couch, as Terrence alluded to, is probably the most dangerous of of all options because you're you're not exercising that vote that you have, and that in theory will benefit uh, the Republican Party in in this case. Interesting. So I... You're not buying it. It sounds like you're not buying it. I'm split on this because as we're discussing, he does have a certain level of power and access. Terrence, you brought up something with regard to Charlemagne being one of the only figures in hip hop, you know, who's talking about electoral politics right now. And you shared some really interesting thoughts in your pre-interview with our producer, Alexis, about how hip hop media is positioned in politics. Yes. Yes. Look, the role that hip hop plays in culture and in discourse today, and not just Black culture, but in culture, specifically young culture, it is indicative to the role that the Black church once played in the Black community, this gathering point, this shared experience that we all have together. And politicians have often used the platform of the Black church to reach the broadest swath of the Black community. And hip-hop is now playing that role in many ways. I want to give Charlemagne some credit here because he has been, for several political cycles now, the singular voice in hip-hop culture that consistently engages in political discourse, not just during elections, but year-round. And I do think that the singularity of his voice, being the only one in hip-hop culture that is constantly engaging the body politic, that is what has given him so much resonance with his audience and so much prominence with politicians that are trying to reach that audience. Braxton, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I I think those points are are very salient. We saw that certainly over this past weekend, Biden was going to to Black churches. And when you look closely at the audiences, we're we're seeing generational divides here, right? Hmm. They're older. (laughs) They're much much older than the 60s and 70s. And that's a demographic that the Democratic Party has on lock already. Has on lock. So like... And the lack of a better term, Biden is preaching to the choir. Precisely. Those voters are already in lockstep with him. Hmm. But like, if he is not going on a show like The Breakfast Club, where is he going to get the 40 and younger vote, right? Hmm. The, the black voters who are kind of on the fence about whether or not they want to show up. So I, I think Terrence is right. But is look, Charlemagne is, is playing a pivotal role here. And the, the, the one thing I want to add, too, is like, how mainstream hip-hop has become. Hmm. Let's not forget that Donald Trump has been a hip-hop figure and a fixture for for decades Decades. now, right? right. Simply because of his wealth. Because of his wealth. He got name-checked in in many a hip-hop songs. And so this is the image also that the Biden administration is trying to fight against, is that Trump already has name recognition. He has some some cachet. Hmm. And for the fact that when he passed the First Step Act, he's pardoning rappers, right? So, like, he already has this uh, this advantage that Biden does not have. Interesting. Terrence, you work in polling and, you know, you've been in, in focus groups. And so you actually have seen up close, you know, what a lot of people are thinking and saying. I'd love to hear sort of like what, what you've heard in some of your focus groups. Like, is Charlemagne's cynicism of the Democrats indicative of larger trends amongst Black voters? I think Charlemagne is reflecting a sentiment that we have seen growing amongst Black voters. What I've heard in focus groups time and time again is that the economy was better under Trump. 
I was in focus mm. groups in Florida right before the 2022 election. I had eight black men in a focus group in South Florida. Seven of them told me that they had more money when Donald Trump was president. Hmm. Seven hmm. out of eight hmm. told me that their lives were, not only did they have more money, but their lives were better when Donald Trump was president. Now, half of those men were very clear. That don't mean they're going to vote for him. But this acknowledgement that there were economic circumstances, that the way he was marketing the stimulus checks and the investments in HBCUs. Like, I'll give you a very prime example. When I ask Black people in focus groups, what has Joe Biden done for you? And they can't name anything. Then I ask them, mm. what has Donald Trump done for you? And they name the First Step Act and they name uh, investing in HBCUs. Well, Joe Biden has given twice as much to HBCUs as Donald Trump. Actually, more. But Joe Biden didn't have all them HBCU presidents in the Oval Office with Kellyanne Conway. Right. With Kellyanne Conway go. with her feet up in the couch. Taking up, we all. <laughs> I always remind people of Kellyanne Coney in the couch because we we all saw it. But what we were really looking at were seventy black HBCU presidents. Hmm. We have not. How many HBCU presidents have you seen in the White House? Not many. I consume this information every day. I haven't seen one. He's not telling the story to black people, and that is where I think that commentators and people that have platforms like Charlemagne have an have an opportunity to connect the dots for people. Regardless of how you cut it, he has a lot of people listening to him. He has a lot of eyes on him, and he's taking it a step further. Charlemagne is in the process of building a politically focused podcast network called Reason Choice Media. And Brecton, talk to me about Reason Choice. Like, what do you think Charlemagne might be trying to get out of it? And how could you see it serving or not serving its listeners? I think it's first important to separate Charlemagne, the host of The Breakfast Club, and Charlemagne, the businessman. So he is understanding that, look, the way we consume our information about politics, about news, about entertainment is so segmented that he's going to be able to play in a lot of these places, right? And he's able to monetize a lot of this stuff. What I think at the end of the day uh, is going to be a real tell of his reach is whether or not he can diversify enough and actually change some folks' minds. Can he bring in some conservative or like independent voices and convince them to lean a different direction? Can he be a big enough influence where he's having these conversations that actually impact the outcome of local elections, maybe statewide mm -hmm. elections? That is, has been something that I think has, has eluded him so far. Okay. Okay. So I, this is the thing. There's no question, right? That Charlemagne, he's got this power. He's here to stay. Do you think that's a good thing? I do think that it is a good thing, mainly because I think that there huh. are a lot of disaffected people. Look, half of America doesn't vote. And a lot of people do not trust any of these hmm. politicians, not even the ones that they like, including Barack Obama. They don't trust him either when, they, when he says, if you vote, your student loans will get forgiven. They don't believe him either because he you know, did not deliver on all of the things that they were hoping for when he was president. And so to the extent that Charlemagne has created a new point of entry for some folks that otherwise would not be entering into the political discourse, I think that is a good thing. I think the more people we activate into this conversation, the better. Bracton? I don't, I don't want to place any, any value on it. I think, I think it is, is what it is, right? Like, so if somebody is penetrating this ecosystem... Charlemagne has a play, has a role to play. I don't think he should be the sole voice for, for a lot of people, but he certainly has a role and an influence in our politics. 
today. Not what I expected to hear. (laughs) Bracton, Terrence, this has been a great conversation. Y'all have given me a lot to think about, I have to say. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. I'll come back anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Terrence Woodbury and Bracton Booker. Now, I see the value in having more entry points to civic engagement, and I'm all for it. But I do wonder if Charlemagne isn't something more, or aims to be something more. And as he expands his reach, I want to know what's his next stepping stone. And I wonder if we should really be turning to a shock jock for political discourse. Coming up, I know for some people, The Breakfast Club is a show they turn to to tackle topics like race and identity. But if you ask me, The Sopranos, yes, the HBO Mafia show, is the most incisive narrative about the dangers of conditional whiteness I've ever seen. Don't believe me? My next guest may convince you to reconsider. And all right, I know I just did an episode where we declared microtrends are over, but I need you to stop what you're doing. We have breaking news. Clean Girl is out. Mob Wife era is in, okay? Clean Girl is out and Mob Wife is in. Or so says TikTok. We're talking about aesthetics here, a new style trend. And if the name doesn't say it all, here's what we're looking at. You'll need to start with an outfit that's comprised of entirely black garments. If you can add some leather in there, even better. And then top it off with a huge faux fur coat. Maybe throw on some thick black eyeliner, huge sunglasses, an Italian designer bag, and lots of gold jewelry. If you look like you're going to a funeral, you know you're doing it right. The mob wife look, just like the clean girl aesthetic, traffics in symbols of wealth, in this case, ostentatious, as a means to signal upward mobility. With those red nails, blow your haters a kiss and strut your stuff into your Cadillac. So why is this happening now? Well, some say it's a PSYOP and Max's marketing department planted it on social media. They, of course, deny that, but HBO's The Sopranos is celebrating its 25th anniversary right now. But I also think it makes sense in this moment. If you look at the aesthetic, what it's trying to accomplish, that upward mobility, you start to see how the mob wife aesthetic isn't just about what's in, but who is in. To do that, let's dig into the aesthetic's source material, The Sopranos. And here's my take on the show, which I love. One through line is that the show is all about conditional whiteness. How what it means to be white is always evolving. And ultimately, whenever whiteness evolves, its goal is to reinforce power. To talk about The Sopranos and why mob wife aesthetics hold up 25 years later, I've got a fellow Sopranos superfan author Morgan Jerkins. In her work, she researches migration and genealogy, and she also wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about why Black audiences love Italian-Americans on screen. Together, we're tracing how, when you follow the story of Italian immigration, you see whiteness reinventing itself right in front of your eyes, and see a projection for how whiteness will continue doing so for generations to come. What two Black women see when they watch The Sopranos and how the show's commentary on whiteness seemed especially loud to us. Morgan, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I am excited. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Okay, so before we get into how this iconic show treats whiteness, I want to zoom out a little bit. Okay. I want to ask you, 
what has whiteness meant for Italian Americans in this country? Oh, I mean, different things, right? When you think about when slavery ended, there was a huge void in the plantation economy. Hmm. Many African-Americans were migrating. And so it left this opportunity for Southern Italians in particular to immigrate. And they immigrated to the United States and they were working a lot in the South. They were huh. working, you know, in Louisiana. They were working in the mines in Birmingham, Alabama. They were working in these places. Hmm. The problem is, is that they didn't come in at the top of the racial or ethnic hierarchy. They were below the, like towards the bottom. And in fact, when this migration was happening, as you can see echoes of it today, there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. KKK was burning up Catholic churches just like they were burning up black churches. There were a lot of newspapers that were stigmatizing Italian men and Italian American men as being violent. We have to also keep in mind that the way we think about whiteness is never static. Hmm. At that time, they Italians were not considered white. Okay, let's turn now to the show itself. There's an episode relatively early on in the series where Tony plays golf with a colleague of his. And the colleague has some friends mm-hmm. who are kind of like the quintessential ideal of waspiness. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to see about making you a member. Or at least assimilated Italian Americanness. Like they, mm-hmm. you can tell that they definitely see themselves as distinct from Tony. Mm-hmm. Tony, you ever play that place in Orlando? No, I never get down there. Well, Disney World. <laughs> you know, Al's place. And the way they interact with him, questions about the mob, stereotyping the way he talks, you know, quoting the same mob films that honestly I love, that, you mm. know, a lot of us love. Tony, uh, let me ask you a question. And now, if I'm stepping on toes, tell me, how real was The Godfather? I mean, in your opinion. What do you mean, real? Authentic or not? I don't know. How would I know? It felt extremely familiar to a viewer like me. It felt extremely familiar to me as a Black woman. Right, because that's the thing about WASP culture is that you will never be us. Mm-hmm. You may play golf with us. You may wear the same clothes as us. You may go to the same private schools as our children. You may break bread in the same restaurants as us, but you will never be us. And it's through certain jabs conversationally where you're reminded of that. You are the outlier. You are on the margin still. In the article you wrote for Vanity Fair, you also point to a specific moment where Tony's wife, Carmela, is talking about Tony's daughter, Meadow. And there was this conversation about how when she was born, Carmela's mother, who was from northern Italy, was concerned when Meadow came out darker skin and that she was like worried that Meadow would grow up to have a darker complexion. Whatever we are, I am proud of it. Unlike you, obviously. I have always been proud of my heritage. Oh, bullshit. I remember you telling Aunt Rose you were glad DeAngelis didn't end in a vowel. I never said that. And when Meadow came out, oh my God, she's so dark. You're drunk, I'm going home. No, there are Italians all around with their closet self-loathing. I just never wanted to believe my mother was one of them. I mean, you know, for deeper context here, you know, Tony's family, the Soprano side is from Southern Italy, as with other countries that are sort of in the Mediterranean, there's like an association with darker skin, darker hair, you know, in the Southern region, then 
lighter skin and possibly lighter hair or lighter eyes in the northern region. I mean, these aren't a one-to-one thing, but these are cultural associations. And Tony Soprano, even, he even mentions that she, her family thinks that they're better because they're more Germanic in mm. terms of their appearance than he mm. is. That was such an interesting moment on the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it reminded me of similar conversations around colorism between Black people. That's something to reinforce. You have these two communities, Black people and Italian people. One was able to assimilate to a whiteness, albeit a conditional whiteness. One is never going to be able to assimilate that way because Mm -hmm. of because of just the way the hierarchy is set up. But that anti-Blackness underneath it all, being too dark, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That is within both communities. It's also interesting to consider these Italian-Americans within the context of actual Italy. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure if you felt this, but very often I felt like Tony and his crew often glamorized Italy, you know, and it felt like the show was kind of poking fun at them for it. But I, I empathize with that, right? Because I think of me growing up Mm -hmm. and we used to talk about the motherland. Well, Africa is a big ass continent. Huge. Okay. And multiple ethnicities, so many cultures. Yes. And and even if you find out that you were a Igbo or Yoruba, right? Or, Uh or, you know, or or from from Senegal or or Gambia or Guinea Bissau, even if you find that out today, what's that going to do? You go there tomorrow, that doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean you're going to easily be able to sink back in. What was taken from you yeah. 400 years ago, right? So mm-hmm. I think with Tony and that, like, it's easy to glamorize the origin of your ancestors when you don't live there, right? Mm-hmm. But I've often seen this play out in many different characters who are of marginalized identities, Orange is New Black, The Sopranos. It's like you are of this particular descent, but you are not this. You're still not that. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, like, this isn't just The Sopranos. I've seen this happen with the Jersey Shore. When the Jersey when Shore, they went of, to Italy for right. that one season, yes, right. But even think about the backlash that they got, even from other Italian Americans, because they said this is not the type of representation of Italian Americans we want to give out there. Oh, I where remember. Have we, where have we heard an echo like that before? <laughs> I, like that. Let's be it's honest. It's true. I mean, so much black entertainment has gotten that exact kind of backlash from within our community. Absolutely. You know, I mean. I wonder, like, I don't know, do you think there was kind of like a meta narrative there, though, about how whiteness operates outside of Americanness? Well, I think it's because when you are considered an American, mm-hmm. that sort of is the umbrella of everything. Yeah. Right? Even yeah. if you're black, like when you are an American, it is a different kind of privilege. Absolutely. So I think that that's something to be mindful of. Yeah, I mean, uh, despite dealing with prejudices, you know, against Italian-Americans, like, you know, on American soil, despite dealing with all sorts of classist and assimilationist, like, just kind of BS from people within their community dealing with essentially racism from people outside of their community, Mm -hmm. the characters on the show, the Italian-American characters on the show, regularly exhibit racist xenophobic behavior. They are right. saying some of those, I will say some of the most inventive racist things I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, yeah. um, but I right. mean, most of these people are racist as hell. And in the world of the show, I wonder, why are they so invested in the same system of prejudice that is enacted against them? You can ask anybody who's been racially 
targeted that question, right? Because hmm. I don't want to have the same proximity to white violence as you. Hmm. If I hate you, even though that same reason why I hate you is why somebody else will hate me, well, at least I can show I'm not like you. Hmm. And that might make me safer, even though that idea of safety is a mirage. Because as soon as I get into another room, I'll be reminded there is no different levels here. You're still beneath me. And that's all that matters. I'm closer to them than you. Hmm. It's like um, anti-Blackness is like a tool. It's like a life raft almost that you can grab onto to put space between you and the thing that you really don't want to be, which is black, at least in this country. Yes. And that's the thing is like anti-blackness, there's anti-blackness in black communities, there's anti-blackness in every single community. Because as long as you're not like them. You have a shot. Yeah. At least I'm not like you. Because you, unlike the Irish, the Polish, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and of course the Italians, they could assimilate. Hmm. You can't. There has to be someone at the bottom of the hierarchy. And it ain't going to be, it ain't going to be and me. it's not going to be me. That's the logic. Yeah. You know, bringing, bringing this into the real world, uh, you know, because art imitates life. And obviously they got the inspiration for these characters from something. Um, I'd argue that that we're in a slightly different place when it comes to Italian Americans now. Like on the whole, on the whole, in my opinion, I think that most Americans overwhelmingly do see Italian Americans as white. It's, some people talk about ethnic whiteness as in like you still have your sort of ethnic pride from, you know, your homeland or your home country, but in the United States when you crack open that census, you're going to check white, right? Well, for sure. For sure. If The Sopranos were to be made today or a show like that, that were to be um, about a sort of like uh, conditional whiteness and maybe assimilationist journey or assimilationist themes, like if a show like that were, were to be made today, what group do you think it would be based off of? Oh, man. I was just thinking about Rami. I think it's important to remember that while The Sopranos was on the way, 9-11 happened. So there was this extreme desire for patriotism, American values, and a very Islamophobic sentiment, but that's still permeating right now. Mm, you know, yes. and I think and, and because we now know that, you know, within the next 20 years, white people are not going to be the majority. That's what's projected. Yes. I have thoughts about that, but but go ahead. Yeah. If the majority can't hold on to the majority, will the will the notion of whiteness expand? Who else will expand to? That is something that has been on my mind. I mean, I find it interesting that opportunities have arisen for many Latinas. And even Asian Americans uh, to be welcomed into whiteness. And whether there are people who actually choose to identify as white, who maybe, you know, come from an ethnic group that 20 or 30 years ago would not have been considered white. Yeah. As more and more people have the opportunity to choose to identify as white. I don't know. I wonder, will this supposedly majority minority moment actually come? If whiteness keeps expanding, is it ever going to be the minority? Oh, Lord. I don't think so. I also think that this country was predicated on white rule. And if you aren't the majority anymore, what happens? Mm. This is why you have a rise of Trump. Because if I can make you fear 
that your safety now as a white person is a mirage, that Hmm. your children are not safe because they always bring up the children involved in it. That's what will get you to either spew violent rhetoric or act in violent ways to reinforce this hierarchy. Hmm. <laughs> I have to make you scared. But you know, there's going to be people who are going to be listening to this who are going to think like, okay, white, white, white. We're talking about white people. White, 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 white. Two black women talking about white people. They're going to freak out, right? Okay. But I wonder, like, uh, you know, or there may be people who are listening who may even think, why should I care? Why should people care? Why should we care if other people want to identify as white? And so I, I ask you that question. Why should we care if people want to identify as white? I think because we have to think about why do I want to be this instead of this? What is being elevated in this moment and what is being obscured? There has to be a benefit in saying, I'm going to say I'm this rather than this. I'm Hmm. going to check this bubble rather than that. (laughs) This is exactly the conversation that I have been wanting to have since I pressed play on season one, episode one of The Sopranos. So thank you so, so much for coming on today to talk with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Morgan Jerkins, fellow Sopranos fan and author of Wandering in Strange Lands. Coming up, I know, I know, Miss Megan the Stallion and Miss Nicki Minaj. The beef is well done. And I have some thoughts right after this quick break. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Ray Love Jr. calling in from L.A. And what's on my mind this week that I would love to know your thoughts on is the rap beef going down between Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj. Is it time for the queen to give up her throne? What say you, Brittany? Ray, Ray, Ray. I think this is a question that's been on all of America's minds this week. For those of you who don't know, last week, Megan Thee Stallion released a new single called Hiss, wherein she basically, without naming names, aired out a few people who had done her dirty over the past few years in this rap game and in her life. There was a lot in there, but this is the lyric that really got things heated. Now, if you didn't know, Megan's Law is a mandate that the public be notified about registered sex offenders. It has nothing to do with Megan Thee Stallion. And many see that lyric as a diss to Nicki Minaj's husband, Kenneth Petty, who failed to register in California as a sex offender and was sentenced to house arrest. In response, Nicki released a series of tweets and live videos, and she eventually released her own diss song called Bigfoot. So in the song, Nikki accuses Megan of lying and brings Megan's deceased mother into it. And on top of that, I don't think the song is that good. Now, this is something that I'm excited to talk about, but I thought this week we'd do something a little different and bring in an expert, a real <laughs> expert to chat this out with me. So to talk about this very pressing issue, 
we have invited storyteller, music industry veteran, Black music and culture critic, and professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU, <laughs> Naima Conkren. Hi, Brittany. Hello. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. This beef between Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion, what do you make of all this? Ooh, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of things here. Crucially, the problem is that Nicki is literally just mad that other female rappers are actually successful and they exist. She's not mad at the men. I've noticed that. She doesn't tend to beef with the men. She is mad at the women unless they kiss the ring. And even then, Mm. if you deign to work with, be cool with, take a photo with anybody else, she then is mad Mm. at you as well. The thing is that Nikki is at a point in her career. She is a legacy artist. It doesn't mean she's washed up. It doesn't mean she's has been. But it does mean like her position should shift to create Mm. space for artists to come behind her. Meg is not her peer. You know what I mean? Meg is a generation behind her. Cardi is a generation behind her. Yes. And yet somehow she sees them as competition, but they're not each other's competition. No, no. These are not her peers. Ray asked if it's time for the queen to relinquish her crown. When Nikki was in her ascent, because of the way the industry was structured at the time, she was in her lane by herself for so long. All of her predecessors were off the scene for various reasons. And whenever they would pop their heads up, Nikki was very quick to kind of diss them, play them, whatever. So I Mm -hmm. think maybe we're seeing a projection based on what being, you know, an elder stateswoman meant to her. And I think she just can't conceive that, like, boo-boo, you can still be you. Like, you, nobody can take away Nikki's feats, her accolades, her talent, or anything. But she seems to feel like this is an erasure situation. And it doesn't have to be. There really is room. I like the way that you put this. It's not necessarily that Nikki, it's time for her to hang up her crown. She's kind of doing it to a certain degree herself. And the sad part is, is that she really doesn't have to. But I mean, Nikki's got us scratching our heads right now. And also as a former Barb, covering my face with shame. (laughs) But I wonder... Do you see a positive path forward to her? Do you see a way back to her former glory? I don't know. And here is why I'll say I don't know. First of all, this isn't new for Nikki. She's been trending in this direction for quite some time. So, you know, her brand now is Mean Girl, right? Hmm. And kind of like Petty Mean Girl. What's happening to Nikki, to me, kind of is a parallel what happened is happening to Kanye, which is like, the antics for a little while, like everybody could kind of let it go and laugh it off, in part because they were creating really strong art. But now the mm. art is falling off. So it's like you can't be problematic and your art be falling off. Like, there's literally no excuse for anybody to engage with you at that point. Yeah. The quality of your art has to be equal to or superior to these antics right as a as a person (laughs) in order for people to be able to deal with it i think that she's gonna have to come to some realizations within herself right before it translates over to the business side Hmm. well naima all we can do is kind of see what happens but i'm so glad that i got to talk this through with you Brittany. thank you so much for having me and let me share my thoughts on this ray there you have it my thoughts and naima's Like I said, we're going to have to see how this all plays out. But till Monday, avoid the bookings and the barbs. Have a good weekend. 
This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Placzek. Engineering support came from Robert Rodriguez, Gilly Moon. We have fact checking help from Barkley Walsh. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.